John chapter 3. If uh, you want to open your Bible app, again, go to John chapter 3 with us. And uh, in case you tuned in online last week, or maybe you were at our Carmel campus for some reason, um, this is a different message from what I shared last Sunday. But I want to open uh, with something this morning that I shared with our Carmel campus, uh, as well as our online community uh, last week. For over 300 years, explorers from around the globe were fixated on the potential of finding a water route that would connect the eastern United States uh, to the Pacific Ocean. And the U.S. was a big player in this exploration race, especially in light of the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, President Thomas Jefferson commissioned two men, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, to assemble a team uh, and to begin their journey to find this water route. And Lewis and Clark were great candidates for this expedition for many different reasons. One thing stands out, though, is that they were experts in water navigation. And that's important because it was the opinion of many that while canoeing the Missouri River North would be an uphill climb of sorts with plenty of challenges, that once they hit the Continental Divide, uh, they would portage their canoes a short distance, connect to the Columbia River, and from there it would be a downhill float to the Pacific Ocean. But man, were they shocked. Because after many months of travel, they arrived at the Continental Divide, not to find the Columbia River, but to find this, the Rocky Mountains. Uh, They had never seen anything like them before, uh, with all of their peaks stretching as far as the eyes could see. And right away, Lewis and Clark had to come to terms with a couple of things. First of all, in recognizing that there was no easy passage uh, to the Pacific. And secondly, while they had planned to navigate the West by canoeing, they first had to learn how to traverse the mountains. If you've ever gone through a major life event before, if you've ever gone through major uh, crisis uh, in your life, in your home, or in your family, like you know, you know from experience that things change. You, you've got to learn to do and operate in some new ways. If, if you run a company, Uh, especially this past year and with the pandemic and the shutdowns and all of the changes. Like you've you've had to learn to see things differently. You've had to learn to do things in in new ways. I I feel for our schools right now in trying to figure out what this next school year is going to look like. And at the same time, I suspect that as a church, we've got some interesting days ahead of us. Uh, trying to navigate all that's going on uh, in our world and in our country, and not just with COVID-19, but with other issues too. Like we're going to have to learn how to navigate these mountains before us. And not only as a church, but as followers of Jesus as well. Like I'm talking about those of you that are, that are here today. Like this rapidly changing culture is going to impact uh, the way that you raise, the way that you teach your kids. Like you're going to have to learn how to navigate these mountains of our ever-changing culture, whether that be in your workplace, at school, or with your friends. And, and so I think it's just a great reminder to all of us uh, of a few things. Uh, first of all, it's a reminder that we need one another. Uh, the church is made up of people. The church is made up of many parts. And Satan is going to try to disassemble and come after and harm our church in different ways. But we've got to stay connected 
to one another, uh, even in this time of, of social distancing. Uh, at the same time, we need to stay focused on our mission. Our, our mission as a church from day one has always been about helping people find their way back to God. And our God, our sovereign God, knew we were going to go through these things. He knew we were going to go through this pandemic. And so he's not surprised, and his mission and his work for us has not changed. We're still about helping people find their way back to God. I'd also add this, that in a world of confusing messages right now, the word of God needs to be our source of truth, um, our sole source of truth for everything that we do, the things that we say, the decisions that we make. Here's the best news of all. We have a guide. Uh, Jesus Christ knows the way through. And he has everything that we need. And I want each of us to be able to look back one day and to look on this season and be able to say, you know what, one thing is for sure. No matter how difficult it may be, I grew closer to my Savior, Jesus Christ, during this time in life, and I will never again be the same. And that's part of the reason why we chose this series. Even as we prayed about what to teach on this summer, what to study together, we chose this Knowing Jesus series because if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to let him be our guide through life, then we need to know him as best as we can so that we can model him and that we can be Jesus uh, to anyone that we might come in contact with. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you today. We are so grateful to be in this place together, uh, to come together in this room, to be able to sing and to worship you and to, to come together as a church family. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. And uh, we pray for your blessing over our time together today. We pray for your protection, your physical protection uh, over our church family. And God, we are asking that you would continue to lead and guide us as a church through these mountains that we're looking at right now. We thank you that you have given us a guide in your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit to guide us in all that we do. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom each day. Give us faith to keep trusting you, Lord. Uh, show us what it looks like to live as Jesus in any and every situation that we might find ourselves in. And, and for this morning, Lord, I, I pray right now that you would bless this time of teaching as we look at your word together, that you might have something specific for each of us. And I pray that we would hear it today and not just hear it, but put it into practice so that we can look more like your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was watching the news the other day. Uh, I don't do that much anymore, but I, I chose to, to watch it for some reason. But one of the things that they were talking about was the preparations for the 2021 Summer Olympics. And I was kind of reminded like, oh yeah, like those should be going on right now. Anyone else a little bummed that we don't have any Summer Olympics right now? I was excited to see a baseball game on TV last night. I mean, we're, we're beginning to see some progress and all, but you know, when it comes to the Olympics, just add it to the list of, of many of the disappointments from this past year. But but, but don't worry, uh, even with all of the cancellations, I want you to know there is one event that you can be guaranteed is going to happen this year. In fact, it would be illegal to cancel it. What is it? The 2020 election, right? Get excited, folks. It, it is coming. It will be here before we know it. And I know that it might be tempting to laugh. I know it might be tempting to roll your eyes or pretend like it's not important. But the fact is that it is important. Uh, it's not a laughing matter. And there are some serious issues on the table that need to be addressed. Issues like getting through this pandemic and uh, our economy and things like racial reconciliation and the value of all human life, uh, respect 
respect for governing authorities, again, healing and unity as a nation, just an easy list, uh, if you would. But the problem is that, especially in an election year, that all of these issues are being politicized on every side, and that's not necessarily a good thing. And so, like you, I can't help but cringe a little bit when I think about the upcoming election and the political circus that I'm sure it's going to be that we're going to have to endure. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine this. All right, try and picture this if you would. Like, what would you do if you came across a political ad uh, where a person running for office said something like this? Uh, They might say, you know what, I appreciate your support, but I've been thinking you should vote for my opponent because they are clearly more qualified than I am. Anyone expect to see any kind of ad like that over the past year? Probably not, right? Or at least you're not crazy enough to lift your hand up in the air. But, or better yet, picture this. like uh, Picture a national debate between two front runners and during one of the rebuttals, your preferred candidate says, you know what, actually, my opponent makes a very clear point and I'd like to concede to them. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to push all of my support in their direction. I think we all together should get behind this candidate 100%, right? Not going to happen. Like politically speaking, the chances of something like that happening are like a snowball's chance on a hot summer day in July, right? Well, we're back in John chapter 3 today. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks. And I want to look at an instance with you where something similar happened. And believe it or not, uh, the implications for us here are not only to learn, but, but to learn and apply. Again, when we read the Word of God together, right, when we look at the life of Jesus, it shouldn't just be about gaining knowledge, but thinking to ourselves, what does this mean to apply to our everyday lives? And for those of us that want to follow Jesus, like what we learn or better yet what some of us will relearn today should shape the way that we respond in any and every situation we find ourselves in. Man or woman, moms and dads, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, students and teachers, employees and employers, neighbors and even strangers. Like there is no realm of life where what we learn today doesn't apply. And so John chapter 3, and for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some events uh, that surround the first half of Jesus' ministry. And what we're going to see today is that shortly after Jesus' visit to Jerusalem for Passover, two large movements, if you would, were really taking shape. And what we learn in John's gospel account is that some people were starting to see these two movements as this, as Jesus versus the other guy, all right? Two movements, Jesus versus the other guy. But what's really strange is that's not how the other guy saw it at all. And the other guy in this instance is a guy by the name of John, not to be confused with the gospel writer John, but this is uh, John the Baptist or sometimes called John the Evangelist. And at this point in time, John had amassed a large following of people. And I want you to look how the gospel writer Mark describes his following. Mark says this about John. He says, the whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, like Jesus, John also was a teacher. He had followers, uh, and so rich and poor, old and young, everyone was interested in what John was doing, what he was saying, and many wanted to join this movement that John had started, which, by the way, was centered on people repenting of their sins and turning back to God. Like, who could argue with a platform like that? 
Well, let's pick up our story in John chapter 3, if you're there, starting in verse 22. John records it like this. He says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. Now, John, the other guy, was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Now, for what it's worth, some scholars believe that this took place around uh, four to five months into Jesus' public ministry, which means he's had plenty of time to gain support, especially when you consider that he caused a scene at the temple. He's been teaching. He's performing miracles in and around Jerusalem, and he's also had some, some meetings with influential Jewish leaders. Well, now we learn, though, that Jesus and his disciples have started baptizing not far from where John and his disciples are baptizing people. which should have been exciting for John's followers because more and more people are finding their way back to God. But as humans often do, someone couldn't resist the urge to take something that was good and bring controversy to it. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that the certain Jew could have been Nicodemus, who we talked about and studied a little bit last week. Uh, He was a well-known, influential religious leader. We don't know for sure. That's just one possibility. But whoever it was, he was debating with John's disciples And I could imagine the conversation going something like this. I could imagine hearing, so where does your teacher stand on issues like ceremonial washing and baptizing? Because I'm looking to cast my vote and I want to know what your leader, your guy has to say about it. In other words, tell me why I should join your side versus the guy who's baptizing not too far away. Well, as you can imagine, John's followers are beginning to get a little frustrated. Again, this argument is breaking out, and so John's followers decide it's time to go to their leader to see him weigh in on the issue. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Like I want you to try and imagine some of the desperation in their voice, you know. Like John, you, you got to speak up. You're like you're our leader. You've got to do something about this. Like we can't let the other teacher have all of the attention. Now, before we look at what happens next, let's, let's take a moment and just try and consider how we might do things like this too. Like in, in any given week, like how many times do you find yourself uh, going out of your way to advance your case or going out of your way trying to make your point? Like, like think about all the ways, think about all the ways that we try and influence others. Uh, Think about all the ways that we'll go to great lengths to defend our turf or to win an argument, whether that be with your spouse or to win an argument with a a friend or to win an argument with a coworker. Like we all do it. Like we all do it all the time. And I'm I'm not saying, I'm not saying you shouldn't have an informed opinion. Like like I'm not saying that there's not a time to be assertive or, or that you and I shouldn't ever stand up for what we believe to be right or what we believe to be true. But I just, like I wanna get you thinking. I wanna ask you, like have you ever stopped, especially in the moment 
uh, before or before you react, have you ever stopped to consider your motives? Like, why, why do you get so passionate about certain things? Or why, why, do you, why do I feel the need to win an argument with, with my spouse? My spouse and I never argue, by the way. We have a perfect marriage. But, you know, like, why, why, do you, why, why do you feel the need to win an argument with your spouse or someone else? Or how about this? Like, when you encounter someone you disagree with, you, have you ever taken note of, like, what, what happens inside of you in any given moment. Like there's probably all sorts of reasons why we respond and feel the way that we do. Like we, we want the things that we're passionate about to succeed. We want our voice to be heard. We're, we're convinced that we're right. We, we think it's important. Like we, or we want to support. Uh, we, want, we want to give our support to the things that we think matter and can make, make a difference in people's lives too. Like I'm just saying there are legitimate reasons to get behind important matters or causes that are meaningful. They're certainly uh, issues that are important to our faith, but deep down, and, and maybe more often than we care to admit, there are other reasons we get so passionate about what we're passionate about. Like, like it or not, I mean, I, I think there's a desire in me and all of us to, we crave control. We want to control things, or, or how often are we motivated by things like fear, or, or is it the result of anger and bitterness that are taking root in our lives and expressing themselves in different ways. I mean, deep down, isn't it true? Deep down, it's so easy to, like, we look out for number one. I mean, we're always looking out for ourselves. I mean, I'm guilty of doing this. We, we want our team, we want our side to come out on top. We want our agenda to win the day. And, and so more often than not, like, we're driven by pride we're driven by what we think that we need. And so again, we draw up battle lines, we raise our voices, we'll write people off. And so I, as I read this story in John 3, I, I just think that's a little bit of maybe where John's followers are coming from. And if we're honest, isn't that where we find ourselves a lot, especially in this churning vortex, if you would, of the world right now. And it's not going away anytime soon. And so that's why it's so important that we pay attention even to stories and accounts like these because the way John responds to his followers, as we're going to see here, is the key, I believe, to helping us think about the way we live our lives, the way that we respond, and even the way we see our lives and our role and purpose in this world right now. Look at how John responds to them in verse 27. He says, you know what? A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but am sent ahead of him. Now, as crazy as this sounds, John was referencing a 700-year-old prophecy about his life. The Old Testament prof, uh, prophet Isaiah predicted that someone would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist knew that he was the guy. That's probably pretty cool, all right? It may be a little tempting at times to kind of live under that pressure, but what an incredible privilege. And, and I don't know what kind of John, or pressure John faced because of that, because, but what we can see is in this moment how he responded to the pressure because as his followers of Jesus, were, were, uh, or excuse me, as his followers were pushing him to, to step up and to say something, John quickly reminds them and us that his mission and goal in life wasn't to make it to the top. And to help them understand, he shares an odd but familiar analogy. Verse 29, John said to them, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. 
Now, this analogy of a Jewish wedding is found all throughout the Jewish scriptures where God is referred to as the groom and his people. Uh, The church is referred to as the bride. And so when John uses the example of a wedding, his Jewish audience would have understood the connection right away. John's point is that he's like the best man at the wedding ceremony. And what's the role of the best man? It's to make sure that the groom has everything he needs on his wedding day and then fade out of the picture as much as possible so that all of the attention is on the groom and his bride. Um, I've been meeting with a couple for the last couple of months. They're getting married this fall. And when we get together, we talk about life. We talk about marriage as well as the wedding day. Do you know what we haven't talked about or who we haven't talked about at all yet? The best man. Like he's just not a part of the conversation. And do you know why? He just has to show up, hold the ring and try not to faint, you know, during the ceremony. But really, what's the role of the best man? Again, the role of the best man is to support the bride. It's to support the groom. The best man is not the center of attention. And John wants his followers to know that he knows his role just like the best man, but there's just one problem. Again, John's got this great following, and surely there was part of him that deserved a little more attention or a piece of the prize. I mean, it seems only fair, right? But that's not John. That's not his heart, because what does he say? And what he, and excuse me, what he does and what he says next uh, is, is enlightening for all of us who want to be able to say that we're following or we desire to follow Jesus in this world. You've heard these words before. Here's John's reply to them. He said that he, and he's referring to Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. And for John, this wasn't an option. For John, he saw no other way to live for Jesus. And he doesn't say it with envy, but he says it with great joy. And his willingness to decrease so that Jesus could increase shows unusual humility. Like it it shows so much how he was like Jesus in character. And it's ironic when you think about it because John, like Jesus, was in his early 30s, in his prime. He's got influence. You think he deserves his moment too. But that's what pride does. And that's what pride says and wants to do in our hearts. Like pride wants to be heard. Pride wants to have a bigger part. And Jesus chooses, or excuse me, John chooses the path of humility. Someone once said this about humility, that humility is not thinking uh, less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so instead of pushing, John gracefully bows out of the way so that Jesus can take center stage. And this is something that we all need to pay attention to. It's not just humility. In fact, we call it freakish humility, if you would. But how could he do it? Like, how could John do and react and say things like this? I would just point to, I think it all has to do with his relationship with God and that he had learned to trust God's bigger plan and role for his life in this world. That he knew that, that anything we have, any, anything that any of us gets passionate about, whether it be power or influence or career or status or possessions, that it all comes from God. And it's to be used to point people to Jesus Christ. And so what's the point of the story? Uh, what, what, what might it be that God has for us for these words, uh, for today, for tomorrow, for, for the rest of this year? Well, John's point to his disciples 
and the rest of us isn't just to get our humility in check, but maybe his bigger point is this, that no matter what we do and say, in all things, the goal is to make the name of Jesus greater. And that means we have to become less. That if Jesus is going to increase in our lives, that we must decrease. And that just means that like John, the best thing we can do in life is to assume the role of the best man at the wedding. And that means that in all things we serve and that our goal is to get as far back out of the way as possible so that Jesus gets the glory in the moment. Like John was able, when you think about it, John was able to read about his part from prophecy copied down 700 years before his birth. And like John, you know what? God has many things to say about our part and our role as well. Here are just a few examples. Uh, Like in Matthew chapter five, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Uh, A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Or look at these words from Philippians chapter two, when the apostle Paul says to do everything without complaining or arguing. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Here's what happens then. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Genesis, do you understand that that's part of our role as followers of Jesus? To shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And then finally, Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20, and by the way, this is where the influence for our church's mission statement comes from. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. All right, we talked about this last week and gave us now the ministry of reconciliation or has given us the responsibility of helping people find their way back to God. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Now here's what I want you to see. And he has committed to us, to you, the message of reconciliation. Hear these words today. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Man, those words, we are Christ's ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents the king in a foreign place. We represent King Jesus to this world. He is wanting to make his appeal through us, through you. And again, that's the part we've been called to as Christians. No matter who you are, no matter who you're with, a life where Jesus is greater. And every day I'm becoming a little bit less, living a life that requires great humility. Man, where where can humility find its place in our lives right now? Think about it. This is not an exhaustive list. And it takes humility to forgive. It takes humility to forgive your spouse, your, your kids, or someone else. It, it takes humility to admit when you're wrong. Uh, it takes humility to, to give financially even when you're afraid. It, 
It takes humility to be patient. It takes humility to love. It takes humility to wear a mask for some. It takes humility to admit you're afraid and to recognize that others might be afraid too. Humility is being quick to listen and slow to speak and even when we're upset. Remember, it's not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. Well, I pray that that God would do this in us today, that we would understand that no matter what we do and say in all things, the goal is to make the name of Jesus greater, and that means we become less. Like when it comes to humility right now, what would your friends and your family say about you and about your life? Uh, what, What would your followers on social media say about you? Uh, What would the people that you work with, the people that you go to school with, like are you living as light right now? Is is there anything in your life that might cause someone to think that you're living for something greater, someone else in this world? See, the more we decrease, the more we humble ourselves, the more Jesus can increase in our lives and for others to see. Don't get me wrong, John is an incredible example of humility. Humility. But Jesus is the best example. He's the greatest example. And as Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, that even though he was God, Jesus took the nature of a servant. He became a servant. And he lived his life on this earth and he served others and he gave his life for us. And so let's learn from John. But let's model Jesus every day and in every situation and all that we do. And as we close right now, I want to take a moment to talk to those of you that uh, maybe have never made a decision to trust Christ or to follow Christ. We want you to know that we love that you're here. And you are welcome with us each and every week. But we want to give you an opportunity today to take a big step of humility by inviting you to surrender your life uh, to the leadership of Jesus Christ. And, And I'll just tell you, it requires humility. It really does, to admit that you have sinned against God. And the Apostle Paul says that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, of God's standard. And the penalty for that sin is spiritual death, which is frightening and humbling to think about. But Paul also tells us that God's gift to pay for our sin was the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross on our behalf and that anyone who trusts in him will be forgiven and will be given new life in this world. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to be made right with God is to trust Jesus. And I want you to know this morning that he is patiently waiting for all of us to turn from our sins so that he can give us the gift of eternal life. And it's a humbling step to take, but I promise you it's the greatest decision you could ever make in your life. Will you bow your heads with me? And as you do, I just want to start there and for anyone today that maybe has never trusted Jesus Christ with their life, that you can do that today uh, where you're seated right now, that even in your own words, you could just pray a prayer that sounds something like this, Lord Jesus, I am surrendering my life to you today. Forgive me of my sins. I am turning to you. I want to follow you. And I promise you that the Lord knows your heart He can see what's going on in your life right now. He loves you and it doesn't matter what you've done. Uh, His forgiveness is good. His forgiveness is perfect. And if you've prayed a prayer like that, if 
if you're, if you're turning to him right now, that he has forgiven you of your sins and you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And we praise God for that today and praise God for you. And we'd love to talk to you this morning before you go. Don't hesitate to come up after the service. We'd love to celebrate with you, pray with you, and talk about some next steps in your life. And Lord, for the rest of us, we pray uh, that you would move in our hearts to give us a humility like John, but certainly like Jesus Christ, your son. Father, we want Jesus to increase in us even as we decrease so that we can be light, so that we can shine like stars, so that others might find their way back to you. Lead us today. Lead our church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.